So thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship. Thank you, Doug, for two pieces of cake. I hope they will survive in the car ride on the way home, that Cindy will get hers eventually. Cindy's not here with us today. Um, she's at home taking care of my parents. You may notice that I'm wearing a mask all the time. I do not have COVID, but um, my sister and my mother and my father do have COVID. And so just so that you can feel safe, before I come into the office or come and came today, I test every day and I am negative. But just to be doubly safe, I wear the mask unless I'm far away from you like I am right now. But as soon as the sermon is over, the mask will be back on. And anyway, that's a long convoluted explanation to explain why Cindy is not here and why I will get two pieces of cake. <laughs> All right. So uh, if you've been here the last couple of months, really, you know that we have been looking at the book of James. But starting this Sunday, because we're into the month of December, the book of James is finished. And now we are starting a new series that will run for the four Sundays in December. And we're calling this series Christmas in the Old Testament, which sounds very weird. Um, Christmas in the Old Testament. And as I said, there will be four sermons. first one today is coming from almost the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, the one next week will be from the historical books, and then the third week will be a sermon from what are called the uh, early prophets in Israel's kingdom period, and then the last one will be from an exilic prophet. And the goal of all four of these sermons together is to express the idea that God has always had a plan to send Jesus. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's not God coming in in an emergency situation in the last moment and saying, what am I going to do to fix this? That's not how God works. God knows what he is doing. God knows beginning from end. And so uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is the one we're going to start with today. This is not the main text of the sermon, but this is the overarching idea for this sermon series. And the text is Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, which says... But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, I'm zeroing in on that first line. When the fullness of time had come. When God's plan had come to fruition, Jesus came. He had a plan. He executed the plan. And the plan worked 
exactly as he wanted it to. So God has always had a plan. How do we know that God has always had a plan? And the answer to that is the Old Testament tells us. The Old Testament tells us God has always had a plan. So the title for the sermon today comes from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 from verses 14 to 19. And the title of the sermon is Jesus is the promised seed. Jesus is the promised seed. So before we look at Genesis chapter 3, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you that in your infinite knowledge you made a plan and in your infinite grace you made a plan that was willing to send Jesus to be born in a manger to live a life that was perfectly obedient to you and because of that perfect obedience he was qualified and willing to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you that three days later you raised him from the dead and have seated him at your right hand. And because of his victory, we can have forgiveness of sins by uh, accepting by faith the grace that you offer because of Jesus' work on the cross for us. So we thank you that you have always had a plan to bring salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. It's there at the beginning of the Bible and it's celebrated at the end of the Bible. So I pray today as we look at your word that you would remind us once again of the importance of Christmas. Not about gifts or about turkey or about Christmas trees or any of these other things that we enjoy and are good. But we thank you that Christmas is the end of the beginning where you bring forth a son in the fullness of time, born of a woman, to bring salvation. So open our ears to hear your truth. Open our hearts to your Holy Spirit's prompting to do what you want us to do. Cleanse my lips to speak your truth now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the promised seed. Genesis 3, 14 to 19. Actually, if I put a text, and don't let this alarm you, if I put a text, it would have to say the whole Bible. Um, we're not going to preach the whole Bible today, but we're going to preach most of it. Uh, but we'll still be out of here in time for lunch, so don't worry. Anyway, in order to understand Genesis chapter 3 properly, we have to look back at the context of what is going on prior to Genesis 3. And there's not a lot. Uh, Genesis 3, as you know, is the third chapter in the Bible. So when we start with Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1 is where God makes the world. And the world is beautiful. It is every day when he makes things, he says, it is good. And on the sixth day in chapter 1, God creates Adam and Eve. He creates them in his image. 
and he gives them a command to fill the earth and to take care of it. So from the beginning of the Bible, God has placed human beings in a place where they can love him, they can serve him, they can enjoy the beautiful world that he made. When we get to Genesis chapter 2, God rests from his creative work. He's worked for six days. He rests on the seventh day. But also in Genesis chapter 2, we get a detailed description of the creation of Adam and Eve. Adam is made from the dust, and Eve is made from Adam's rib, and together they form this unit to worship God together, to serve him, and to enjoy this garden together. And God, in his wisdom, gives them all of the trees of the garden to eat from, except for one. And that tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, if you eat from that tree, you will die. And so when we get to the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, this wonderful, idyllic situation where Adam and Eve are just enjoying all of the benefits that God has provided for them, a serpent comes. And that serpent is representative of Satan. Or Satan is filling that serpent. I don't know exactly how that works. and None of my business, frankly. But the serpent who is being empowered by Satan, comes and he deceives Eve and says to her, are you sure God really said what he said about not eating from this tree? And so she starts to think about it and eventually Eve decides, hmm, I think I'm going to eat from this tree. So she eats from the tree that she is not supposed to eat from. And not only that, she takes some of the fruit from that tree that she has eaten and she gives it to her husband Adam and he eats it too. And immediately upon eating that fruit, they now recognize good and evil. They recognize their own nakedness and they are ashamed. And they realize they have made a horrible, horrible, horrible mistake. And so when God comes to meet with them, as was his habit at the end of the day, each day, when God comes to meet with them, everybody hides because they're ashamed, because they know that they have done wrong, but they don't know how to fix it. They don't know how to make it right. And so when God comes to them and says, what is this that you're doing? Somewhat like I like to do, everybody blames everybody else. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the snake. Not my fault. Blame that one. Not my fault. Blame that one. And so now we're in a spot where God has to do something. Adam and Eve, in the garden, everything was good. Now they've disobeyed God. What is going to happen? And this is where we come to our main text for today, Genesis 3, 
14 to 19. So the outline for the sermon today is we're going to first of all see God's pronouncement of judgment. In other words, people disobeyed. God gave them a direct command. They disobeyed. What is the judgment for that? Secondly, in the midst of that judgment, God also gives a promise of hope. He doesn't just say, you were bad, I'm done with you, goodbye. He gives a promise of hope. And finally, we're going to see that promise unfold in God's plan of salvation. So let's start with God's pronouncement of judgment, which we're going to see in Genesis 3, beginning at verses, verse 16 and through to verse 19. So with each of the people, or combatants, if you will, we've got Eve, we've got Adam, and we've got the serpent. What is God's judgment on each one of these? So we'll start at verse 16. So to the woman, God said, and you notice I've, I've tried to reflect it on the PowerPoint. Uh, the language that God uses here is very poetic language, like you see in the Psalms, and that's why the line structure is the way it is, where lines are sort of in doublets, where they either repeat themselves or they say, the second line says the opposite. And so here in God's judgment on the woman, he says this, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now when we look at that, you think, God sounds kind of mean. That sounds kind of mean. They disobeyed, and now God is talking about something other. What is this? He says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. In other words, having a baby is going to hurt a lot. And those of you who are mothers know exactly what I'm talking about. And those of you who are fathers that have been in the room with the mothers know exactly what I'm talking about. There is a lot of pain in having a baby. Why would God punish or judge Eve in this way? Well, if we think back, what was the creation mandate? The creation mandate was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so now, in this state of sin, Eve still has the responsibility of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. But now, it's going to hurt. Now it is going to be filled with pain. Secondly, he says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now there's some debate about what 
God is, is saying here. Um, we often confuse the word desire here to, to say that the four lines are really saying the, the same thing. So line one and line two says it's going to hurt to have a baby. And then line three and line four is sometimes understood to say, even though you know it's going to hurt to have a baby, you'll still want to be with your husband, which if line three were there on its own would make sense. But how do you explain line four? He shall rule over you. So in fact, I don't think that's the correct understanding. I think the four lines are emphasizing two different things. So line one and line two are saying, your job was to be fruitful and multiply, and now that's going to hurt. And your job in the garden was to be a helper, a completer for your husband, Adam. But now your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What does that mean? Well, those verses in, or those words in Genesis 3.16 are almost exactly the same words that get used one chapter later in Genesis chapter 4 at verse 7. And in this verse, God is talking to Cain. And Cain is unhappy because God is not accepting of his offering. And so he complains to God. And God comes to him and he says this in Genesis 4 verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it. The language there is very, very similar. Now, what is the point? In Genesis chapter 4, what God is saying to Adam is, sin wants to take control of you, but you have to defeat it. You have to overcome it. You have to rule it. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, if I could paraphrase what God is saying to Eve is, you will want to boss your husband around, but he is going to dominate you. Now again, why would God make such a judgment? Again, what was the role of the woman in the garden. What is the result for the woman? The woman's role in the garden was to be fruitful and multiply and to be a helper with Adam. But the penalty she receives is pain in childbirth and the consequence is defeat. Defeat at the hands of her husband. In other words, this, in my judgment, is the beginning of the battle of the sexes, where women and men are in conflict with each other, wrestling for authority and control. And why is that? Because 
The role of Eve was to be a helper to Adam. But in sin now, there's pain in childbirth and there's going to be uh, discontent in the relationship. When God speaks to the man, starting in verse 17, the man's judgment is much longer. Why is that? Well, Eve was deceived. But the text never says that Adam was deceived. Adam knew what he was doing, and he did it anyway. And so when God speaks to Adam, Eve's judgment was one verse. Adam's judgment is three long verses. Here's what it says. And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So what is Adam's judgment? Adam's role was to tend the garden and to benefit from it, to grow fruits, to grow vegetables, to grow food to eat that would be of benefit to himself and to his wife and to his family. But now the ground is cursed. And because the ground is cursed, it will be difficult for Adam to get the food and the, and the nourishment that he and his family needs. Now there will be struggle. And the end of verse 19 says this. Till you return to the ground... For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God makes a pronouncement of judgment that Adam is going to die. Eve as well is going to die. But he speaks this to Adam. Death here is both spiritual and physical. When they ate of the fruit They died spiritually, but God promises them that because of this, they will ultimately end their lives. So what was the result for Adam? He was designed in the beauty of creation to reap benefits from the garden, to take care of and have dominion over the garden. But because of sin... His penalty is lifelong, toilsome labor. And his defeat is death and return to the ground from which he was made. We look at that and we say to ourselves, this is terrible. This is horrible. There is alienation. There is frustration, there is discouragement, there is defeat for both the man and the woman. All of this comes because of their disobedience to what God has said. But we know that God did not leave them there. 
And so I'm going to take us back a couple of verses to verse 15, the main part of this message. God's promise of hope. And that comes from Genesis 3, verse 15. We'll start at verse 14, because this is where God pronounces judgment on the serpent. But in this pronouncement of judgment, there is hope. Verse 14 says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, meaning deceived Eve and gotten her to eat from the tree and she has given it to Adam and they have eaten it and both of them now know the difference between good and evil. Both of them are sinners. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now you notice when God spoke to the man and the woman, he never cursed them. With Adam, he cursed the ground. With Eve, she was promised pain. But neither one of them was cursed. But here, when God speaks to the serpent, he says, you are cursed. This is a pronouncement by divine authority to say, you are doomed. The fact that he tricked Eve into eating the fruit. His curse is that for the rest of his life, he will have to eat dust. Just like Eve ate the fruit. So there is penalty for the serpent. There is humiliation. There is disgust and abhorrence. But now we turn to verse 15 and we see the very first time that God promised victory over Satan. Here's what verse 15 says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is God's promise of hope here? He says in the first two lines of verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This word enmity, we don't use it very much in English today. Um, and it sounds like she's not going to like you and you're not going to like her and you know, just stay out of each other's way and everything will be okay. But that's not what the word enmity means. Enmity means a state of extremely hostile relations. It's the word that is used to describe the relationship between two countries that are at war. They are fighting against each other. They are in a battle. And so when verse 15 says, there will be a battle, there will be a war between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. This is where the title from the sermon comes from. Another word for offspring is seed. 
Seed is probably a better word than offspring because, well, they both work, but offspring can mean one person or a group of people. And seed can do the same thing. It can refer to one person or to a larger group. And so in verse 15, God says, there's going to be a battle, there's going to be a war between you and the woman today and tomorrow and for the rest of your life. But as you have children and painfully bring them into the world, your offspring and the offspring of the wicked one will constantly be battling each other. But at the end of verse 15 comes the victory. And here there is no doubt that it is singular. He, an individual, will come and he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, some translations change the two words. First line they put crush. He shall crush your head and you shall crush or, or bruise his heel. What they're trying to show with that is what really comes out with the words head and heel. In other words, this promised seed that will come from the woman will take his foot and smash the serpent's head. It will be ultimate defeat. Even though the serpent and his evil followers are going to do their best to try and hurt this promised seed, all they will be able to do is temporary marginal pain. There will be injury, but it will not be total defeat. So what is the result for the serpent? The result is humiliation, recognition of wickedness and craftiness and evil behavior. And what is the defeat? The defeat this time is by the woman's offspring. God has promised that even though there will be battles for years and years and years and years that will go on, generation after generation, there will come a day when the woman's seed, the woman's offspring, would have the ultimate victory. This is Christmas in the Old Testament. If you look up in fancy theology books, there's a Latin word for this verse. They call it the protevangelium. What does that mean? The protevangelium is the word that scholars use to say this verse, Genesis 3.15, is the first gospel reference in the Bible. It is the very first time that God says, I will save my people. I will bring through the seed of the woman salvation. So, Adam is upset and distraught and ashamed. Eve is upset and distraught and ashamed. 
And Satan is humiliated, and he knows that God has made a promise that one day he is going to be ultimately defeated. And so Eve, her name means living, or the one who gives life. And so as we work our way through the book of Genesis, we begin to see God opening up this plan of salvation. He's promised to send the seed, and then when we work our way through the Bible, we begin to see how that seed comes to fruition. So how would God defeat Satan through the woman's offspring? How is he going to do this? Because as we work our way through the entire Old Testament, what you begin to see is this is an ultimate battle between good and evil. There will be battles. There will be setbacks. That's what enmity means. But God would use the seed to defeat Satan and bring victory to his people. So I'm sure when Eve gave birth to her first son, Cain, I'm sure she thought, I wonder if he is the one. I wonder if he is the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. And then she has another son, Abel. And he is born, and the two sons together offer sacrifices. Cain gets jealous, and he kills his brother. And Satan is sitting and thinking, I won that one. I won that one. And so, following the death of Abel, Cain is cursed. And he goes on his way. And Adam and Eve have another son, Seth. And Genesis 4.26 tells us that now there are two lines. The line of Seth and the line of Cain. And the line of Cain are those that are fighting against God. And the line of Seth are supposed to be the people that are following after God. And yet by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6... Things are so bad in the world that God has to start over with Noah. And God destroys all the people in the world except eight. And even with those eight that witnessed the miracle of the ark and God rescuing them from the flood, one of them shames his father and is cursed. And the battle continues, and Satan says, won that one. I won that one. And we go on and on, and Abraham comes along in Genesis chapter 12, and God makes a promise to him in the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 12 to say, I will bless you, and I will bless your seed. I will bless your offspring, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And yet there is struggle, there is fight, there is sadness, there is sin, there are mistakes, and time goes on. And we could talk about Moses who leads the people out of Israel so that they could complain and complain and complain and complain. Is he the one? Is he the seed? 
But he dies, and Joshua comes and leads the people into the land. And yet, they don't ultimately defeat the people that are there. There is still struggle. There is still fight. The judges come along, and they sometimes lead the people in victory, but ultimately fall into sin. And we get this cycle of obedience leading to victory, followed by apostasy. And it just goes round and round and round, this battle between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. So finally, when Israel is settled in the land and they have a king, and that king fails, and then a king after God's own heart comes on the throne, but he's not there very long before his son rules and builds a temple worship God but as soon as he does that the kingdom is divided and there are good kings and there are bad kings that ultimately leads to exile because the people cannot worship God they are listening to the voice of Satan and over and over and over and over for generations People are saying, God promised a seed. God promised a seed would come and bring victory over the enemy and victory over sin. When? When? When will this come? So that by the first century, the hope had turned to Messiah. Someone who would have to come and save God's people. And it is at that moment, as Galatians 4 puts it, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, I don't think that's an accident when he says that. Jesus is the promised seed. So when the angel comes and appears to Joseph that we read in our scripture reading today, in Matthew 1.21, the angel says to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will be the winner and he will save us. When the angel appears to Mary in Luke 1.31, he says this, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior, the one who saves. When the angels together appear to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, what do they say to the shepherds? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. Jesus is the promised seed. In the fullness of time, God brought forth a son born of a woman to save us. Now you say, okay, that sounds fine. But when you look at the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament assumes 
what I just said. For example, 1 John 3 verse 8 says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to win the war. And by living his perfect life and dying on the cross, he won. Colossians 2 verse 15 says it this way, He, meaning God the Father, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Jesus crushed the serpent's head. Hebrews 2 verse 14 puts it this way, Through death... He destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus won. Jesus won the war. The enmity between the serpent and the followers of God is finished. Now, we look around the world and we see is it finished? The verdict is in. We are waiting for it to be enacted. When Jesus rose from the dead, he declared victory over sin and death. And he is sitting at God's right hand, waiting for the moment when the Father will tell him to return and have that final victory. But final victory is coming. Now the exciting part for us is that Jesus is the winner. Jesus won the battle. And because he won the battle, we can have victory too. If we are following Jesus, if we are the children of God, if we are in obedience to him, if we accept Jesus by faith and the work that he has done for us as the promised seed. And if we are followers of him, we take part in that victory as well. How do I know that? Because Romans 16, verse 20, when Paul is finishing up his book, a masterful description of God's faithfulness and salvation by faith to Jews and Gentiles both, he comes to the end and in his final blessing to his readers, he says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We as followers of Jesus play a part in the war. We play a part in the victory that Jesus accomplished in his death on the cross. And one day, that victory will be final and complete. Revelation 20 puts it this way. Revelation 20 verse 2 says, And he, meaning God, seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, 
who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. If we jump down to verse 10, and it says, And the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. God wins with Jesus. And we win if we are followers of Jesus. So Jesus is the promised seed. The very beginning of the Bible tells us Jesus came at Christmas to save. He lived a faithful life of obedience. He died on the cross to defeat sin and Satan. So I ask you today, if you don't follow Jesus, if you are not, have not given your life to him, Will you join him today in victory by becoming his faithful follower? Will you give your life to him? This world is full of enmity and frustration and shame. Jesus came to bring victory. Will you join him in his victory? If you are already a follower of Jesus, let me ask you a question. Are you living a life to please him are you by his by his grace crushing the serpent's head how are you living to please the seed that god promised all the way back in genesis 3 he is giving us victory are you acting on the victory side let's pray Father God, we thank you that Jesus is the promised seed. That from the very beginning of the Bible, we can see that you have had a plan to send your son, born of a woman, and you sent him at the exact right time to bring salvation to your people. Thank you for the victory in Jesus. I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus, who is not his follower, that today would be the day that they would turn to him, confess their sins, and follow him. And for each of us who do know you and by faith have accepted Jesus, I pray that we would live in a way that pleases you, that we would recognize that the victory is won, but there are still skirmishes to be fought. Help us to crush the serpent's head for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.